Well, this morning, as we look at our scripture text, it's an easy one to find right at the beginning of the Bible. First book, first few pages, so I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and that's a text that we're going to be looking at in in just a minute. We are in the Easter season, a season of the Christian church called Eastertide, this time between uh, the Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost Sunday, which this year falls on May 15th, and it's a Time of the year, the church, that we look at resurrection faith, resurrection hope. What are the implications of that for us? And so as we thought about a series and discerning a series coming out of the Easter weekend, we wanted to do something that helped us to understand this Resurrection Sunday and what is so central to our faith, what is central to the gospel story of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And so we wanted to do a story that helped us to see scripture from a very high level and understand the components of scripture as they unfold from genesis to revelation and to understand the implications of the resurrection story in the context of each of these chapters we're going to look at 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 eight different chapters throughout this series i think every one of us it's true to say comes to some big questions in life at different times we know that we all have them at certain points and seasons of our life. We try to make sense of things, especially when things are challenging or difficult. That can be a time when we are trying to understand uh, some answers and our place uh, in the world. Um, It's true that all people of all nations, of all generations, ask these kinds of big questions in life. You can go anywhere in the world. You can talk to people of any generation, and at different ways and at different times, we ask some of these questions, like, Well, how did it all begin? Where did we come from? How does life make sense? What gives it purpose and meaning? And we try to find our our way in the world and find our place in it. Well, we can use many tools for this. Uh, One of the things that we can help find our place in the world is is maps. You know that. Uh, I love our maps. Maps help us to understand places, understand where we are. See that little red, that little dot in the right corner? That's actually where you are right now, I think. Yeah, that's right. So maps help us to understand a little bit about uh, where we are uh, at a certain time, where you're going. They help us to see the big picture. I, whenever I go to somewhere new, and I've shared this before, I love maps and I have to pull them out. I have to understand electronic maps even better uh, because then you can really have somebody kind of literally hold your hand almost through it. You know, you hit navigate and you have this nice gentle voice that kind of tells you where to turn and, and what to do and how far it is to get somewhere. It doesn't matter whether you're walking or biking, or taking public transit, or driving in your car. You just sort of hit the adjustment, and away you go. Uh, It lets you know. But what's important in that, in directions, is that you need to have a starting point and an end point. And that's why on maps, if you go to the next slide, you see that you have to see that it it points to what's your location to start with, and then also where is it that you want to end up. Because where you are really matters in order to know how to get to where you're going. So if somebody's coming to your house and they're on their way to your house and they get lost and they call you and they ask that question of, you know, how is it that I get to your house because I'm lost? Again, what's the first question you're going to ask them? Well, where are you? And if they say, well, I have no idea, I mean, you have a few responses that you could give. You could say, well, then it's really impossible to get here from there. Or you could say, maybe you shouldn't actually be out in public alone. Or you might be more helpful and say, so what are some landmarks around you? What do you see around you? And maybe I'll help you understand where you are, and then we can help you get to where you need to be. 
But the point is, is that understanding where you are is really important to know where you're going and also to understand the big picture of some of these big questions. And so where we come from, what's around us, where we're going, maps help us with this. Stories, in many ways, are like maps. Stories also help us understand where we are, where we've come from, where we're going. Stories recall and give meaning to certain people and events. Stories are of a different nature, and we know that. You can have fictional stories, you can have true stories. Both of those can convey meaning of different kinds, can contain meanings of different kinds. But, but true stories are more powerful. True stories are far more powerful, and if you're like me, and when you go to a movie and you find out that it's a true story, you actually pay more attention because it's more powerful because they intrigue us. They cause us to marvel at all that human beings can go through and overcome and endure and all of those kinds of things. And it's also a lot harder to dismiss the implications of the story when you recognize that it's true. And that's what this series is about, this one big story. It's about a true story of a living, loving, holy, and creative God who establishes a people for relationship. Understanding the implications of that story changes us. It needs to change us as we try to understand more and more about how we fit into this story. Because stories, again, are like a map. They tell us where we come from, where we are, where we're going. And it gives meaning to, most importantly, the why and the who. Not just what happened and where and when, even though those things matter too, but what's really important and what they help us to understand is the why and the who. Who is it that began this story? And so in these weeks that we're in, we'll look at these eight chapters of God's big story and to understand these different segments and how they fit together and how they all point to the cross and they focus on the center point of our gospel story, which is Jesus Christ. And I think this series will help us to understand our place in it as well, too. Because our story only makes sense in the context of God's bigger story. So we need to see and understand that first. The first chapters of these eight that we're going to be talking about in this series are actually all found in the book of Genesis, which has many chapters in it. But in terms of this big story, the three chapters that we're beginning with come all out of the book of Genesis. Last week, Dale began the series, uh, and he began where he needed to begin, which is in the beginning, and that is the story of creation, and Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In fact, two accounts of creation, again, told from different perspectives for different purposes, but telling the same true story. And today, we're going to look at chapters 3 to 11, and primarily focusing on chapter 3, but it's a story of brokenness. And next week, we'll look at chapters 12 to 50 of Genesis and and look at this aspect of promise. Genesis, as the name implies, is a book of beginnings. It's a book of origins. Beginnings of the cosmos, beginnings of humanity, beginnings of the people of Israel. It's an account of what has been called theological history. And it's important for us to understand that. That means, and part of that meaning is, is that it doesn't have always the, all the answers that we would like to have and all the questions that we bring to it because it wasn't intended for that. Again, it's theological history. It focuses mostly and more so on the why and the who and the truth of the stories and what we need in that. For, for instance, when we come to it with science and the creation story, can the creation story withhold the scrutiny of science? Absolutely. 
They go hand in hand and they answer many of the questions, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily give us all the answers that we would like it to give us because it maybe wasn't intended for that. As theological history, it gives us enough of the true historical record to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And Genesis 1 to 3 is absolutely foundational text for all of Scripture and understanding all of God's story and why things are the way that they are. I think one of the things that we have to admit, whether we admit it or not, we see it all around us all the time, is that the world is messed up lots of different ways. The world is broken. Things are broken in all kinds of ways. We might, again, ask, why is that? What's going on in the world? And we will find in our text today, in Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters the story. And where sin leads to this brokenness of humankind and brokenness in so many ways. We'll see it in the very beginning in Adam and Eve in chapter 3. But we also see it in chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel. We see it in chapter 5 of Genesis in the implications of sin and how life at one time was like 900 plus years and now life is scaled back and and people are not going to live any more than 120 years. And so there's a, a diminishing amount of life that is given to people by God. In chapter 6 to 10, we see the story of Noah and the flood and the implications of sin in a world gone wrong. And then lastly, in Genesis 11, we see the story of the Tower of Babel and the implications, again, of sin in that story as well. Cycles of sin and brokenness that just come in waves over and over again, just repeats itself. It seems like it's just relentlessly established. And this sin and this brokenness is found in absolutely every culture. It's found in every generation. It's found throughout the course of history. We feel it in our hearts, in our own lives, in all kinds of ways. And it's expressed in different ways, but but really it essentially comes down to this one thing. It comes down to actually declaring, whether we verbalize it or not, but in our hearts what we're really saying is, I'll be God right now which is at the root of all this sin, this pride of saying, no, 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 maybe I'll be my own God right now instead of submitting to the one true God. And so we see the evidence and we feel the evidence of this reality in our lives. So look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'm just going to walk through a first uh, number of verses, and then we'll just touch on, we won't read through the whole chapter because of our time this morning. But after the creation accounts in 1 and 2, we come to chapter 3, and we're immediately introduced to the serpent. We're not really, we're kind of caught off guard by that in some ways. There's no kind of preamble to that. But all of a sudden, this serpent that represents everything that is evil comes in and starts right in this story. And it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really uh, say you must not eat the fruit from any trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then the story goes on to record how it caused this brokenness between them and God. And how suddenly it it uses different language where God was looking for them in the garden. They heard his footsteps in the garden and there was this calling out and this conversation that happened. 
And God is asking, what have you done? And the woman tells the story of the serpent. And he says, God says to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than any animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust. And then this prophetic word, this word, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he says to the woman, there's also going to be a change in terms of other things that you will, the pain of, of pregnancy and childbirth will increase and you will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you. And there'll, there'll be this animosity and this tension in relationships that'll be there. And to the man, he says, you know what, you're going to now be tilling the soil and working hard and it's going to be painful and difficult by the sweat of your brow and there's going to be thorns and thistles and it's going to be more challenging than you could imagine. And then at the end of chapter 3, they are banished from the garden. Banished from the garden. And from that intimate relationship that they had with the living God. There's all kinds of implications and truths in this story that help us to understand many things about the human experience. You know, we like to blame the woman on this one. Well, at least the men like to blame the woman on this one. But at least the woman gave an argument and put up protest. The man, he just caved and went along without comment. But both are guilty. Both are falling into sin. Both are continuing on in this pattern of making choices, of saying, no, 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 I will be my God right now. Genesis chapter 3 really gives the backstory to so many of our big questions. And I mentioned some of them earlier, and those are some of the the large questions. There are some really specific questions that you can come to this Genesis chapter 3 with as well that you might ask, I might ask. Why is my work at times so frustrating? You might ask. Why is it that childbirth is so painful? Okay, I've never asked that, but in the moment, I've been hit by people who have asked that quite loudly. Um, Why are relationships so difficult? Why is there so much anger and violence in the world? Why does God seem so distant? I mean, these are some really relevant questions that if we look closely at the Bible narrative, we see that the origins to the answers, any kind of answers we would come to with these questions, come from Genesis chapter 3. This sin that enters into the world, the decisions and the choices that are made by these people, And then as you look at Genesis chapter 4 to 11 and you see the story ongoing in different ways and unfolding, we see this story or this chapter of brokenness that just kind of continues on in the history of mankind and continues on to this day as well. Because when you look at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, you see that, that creation was at peace and that things were good, things were the way that God intended and the relationship between between humankind and God was, was in a healthy, good space. The relationship between man and woman was good and healthy and wholesome. The relationship between them and creation was healthy and good and whole. And everything was at peace. Everything was the way it should be. And then in chapter 3, it starts with this serpent representing evil and everything changes. And again, we can't just blame the serpent because God gave us choice. And sin and brokenness enters in with the choices that are made. As we say, I'll go my own way. Just as they did. Just as we do. So now we see that there's brokenness between man and God. They're banished from the garden. We see that there's brokenness between the man and the woman as there's this tension and this wrestling for control and power and relationship. 
There's this brokenness that is there between even them and creation. And there's this brokenness even between them and themselves as they now feel shame. This inward shame that is there because of the sin that is caused that they didn't feel before. And starting in Genesis 3 verse 15, in that text we, we see the punishment of the servant, the serpent and how God is declaring his intention to defeat evil and he ultimately will. Where he says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And again, it's this prophetic word of pointing ahead, of one, ahead to one day when this evil will be defeated ultimately. But Genesis also shows us God's continuous and passionate pursuit of his sinful creatures. We see in all the stories that we'll touch on today, we'll see glimpses of grace. Grace is not only found in the, in the New Testament. Grace is found throughout the Old Testament in all kinds of ways. We'll see them even evident here in each one of these stories that are found in Genesis 3 to 11. You see it in the story of, of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 where we have these two brothers that are already living out what was declared in chapter 3. They're already living out in, this, in their terms of bitterness and conflict and jealousy that is there between these two brothers. And God asks Cain, and he says, why are you so angry? And then he gives him this warning in verse 7. He says, sin is crouching at the door and eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. And I was reading that this week. It, it struck me again that it so closely even, parallels even what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 where he said this, he says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. And I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? We see that right in Genesis chapter 4 as God is speaking to Cain. And he says, be careful. Sin is always crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. But instead, if you know the story, we know that sin overwhelms him and Cain makes choices where he kills his brother. And brokenness, the story of brokenness continues. But even then, as God judges Cain and he banishes him from the land in his presence, you see glimpses of grace Because as Cain cries out that he will be be killed immediately when he leaves the presence of God and because of what he'd done, God puts a mark on him, it says, in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 4. God puts a mark on him so that people will not kill him. And we see as you continue to read in that story that he has many offsprings, many descendants, and he is allowed to live. And there is this glimpse of grace that is even there in that story. When you come to 5 and 6 of Genesis and you see... The story of Noah and the flood. It's a story that is often a well-known story if you've been involved or grown up in the church in any way. And it's the story of the judgment of God in a world gone wrong. And there's such strong language in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, where the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on earth and it broke his heart. I mean, just listen to the graphic language of that, the, the, the powerful, passionate language of that, the sad language of that. And a little bit further on in verse 11, it says, Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. 
And God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. It just speaks to this this brokenness because of sin that enters into the world and, and how it proclaims this truth. And God, he's even sorry that he created mankind. As you look at chapter 5, even before, you see the implications already of the reduced years going from, as I said, 900 and some years down to 100 years and so on. And how there will be diminished life because of the consequences of sin. But then in this story of Noah, if you're familiar with this story, how God, he wipes out the earth with this great flood. But there, even in that story, there are glimpses of grace. Because he sees this one man, this one man and his family, Noah and his family, who are righteous. And he rescues them. And how he saves them to continue on this line. And how he doesn't completely snuff out this human race that he created. But he allows them to continue on through the line of Noah and his family. Symbol of grace. And at the end of that chapter, in in chapter 9, you see the, the covenant that God makes with Noah. And this symbol of the rainbow. And he says, this will mark the truth of my covenant with you. That I will extend grace and I will never do this again. So even again in these stories of brokenness, we see grace coming through again and again. You turn to Genesis chapter 11 and you think of, and we look at the story of Babel. And we realize that that there was sin in this story as well. And this brokenness continues. And in verse 4, these people, as they gather together, they say this. They say, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. And this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. And sometimes it's hard to understand, okay, so what exactly was the sin here in the Tower of Babel? But really the fundamental sin was this attempt to make a name for themselves, of building a city and a tower that reaches to heaven. It was an act of pride, of again putting themselves in the place of God, who is the only one who builds reputations, just as he did with Abraham a little bit later. And again, so the consequences of their sin is judgment. The consequences of their sin is that their language is all confused. It was a time when they all spoke one language. And God confuses their language and they are scattered throughout the the, the earth. But even in that, there is this picture of grace. As God could have just shut down all languages and made that impossible for for, uh, communication between people or between them and God. But he extends this grace of languages as these people are dispersed throughout the world. It's harder now to communicate. But it's grace all the same. Commentators have pointed to Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, where the people in Jerusalem are coming together and they have this amazing movement of the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, and, and so on. It gives a list of all these different nations and all these different people. And it says, and we hear all these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. And how at this unique moment where the Holy Spirit of God is doing amazing things, filling his followers, these followers of Christ, then they go out and they declare the wonders of God. It's, it's like this great reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Where people were dispersed throughout all the world. They were dispersed. And now in Acts chapter 2, it's like God is bringing them all back and they're all declaring in all these languages and people can understand again because of the work of the Spirit. And they're declaring the glories and the wonders of God. And it's like this great reversal of the brokenness that we see in Genesis chapter 11. Evidence of grace. You know, the story of Babylon in Genesis 11 has been called the last of the 
primeval narratives at the end of this series of stories of brokenness. And in Genesis 11, there's still no obvious solution to the sin problem. But in God's timing, he introduces something new and something incredible that we'll step into next week. He does so in the person named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And an incredible promise to a people that he sets apart to declare his glory and his goodness. See, in each of these stories that we so briefly touched on here, and I realize that, we see how man seems addicted to sin, how God shows that sin doesn't get a free pass. There is judgment for sin. There are consequences for sin. But equally, though, we see a God who doesn't give up on us. We see a God who continues to pursue us, continues to extend grace to us, continues to provide a way out for us, continues to rescue us in so many ways. Even when you go back to Adam and Eve in chapter 3, if you read through that whole chapter, you see at the end of that account, before they were banished from the garden, it says how the Lord God himself knit together and made garments for them out of the skins of animals. God made them clothes. What an amazing picture of grace. Even in the midst of judgment and the consequences of sin. So what do we learn through all these stories of brokenness? I think one of the most significant things that we learn is that this is our story too. We too are sinners. We too are the ones who cause brokenness in the world. We too are the ones who cause distance and brokenness between us and God and between us and other men and women, between us and creation. We too live in the midst of this brokenness in this world and we contribute to it as well. When we see the world and we see all the things that are broken and all the evil that's there and we kind of wonder why in the world is this evil so prevalent all over, we need to recognize that this too is the story of our heart. That this too is the story of the evil that is there within us. That just as God said to Cain that we too need to subdue it and be master over it and not allow it to master over us. In 1 John chapter 1, John is describing this picture now from a different era, but he points to this truth as well in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. And he says, if we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And he goes on in verse 10 and he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. But then he also says, right in the midst of that text, at the end of verse 7, he says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So on the one hand, as we look at these stories of brokenness that we see right there in Genesis, chapter after chapter, of the human condition of sin and brokenness, we first of all have to recognize that this too is our story. That we also contribute to this story. But then secondly, and even more importantly, because of Easter, because of Resurrection Sunday, that there has been a price that has been paid. There are consequences for sin that have been paid with the ultimate price of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And the one who overwhelmed the grave and because of the blood of Jesus, we can be forgiven of these sins and we can be free. 
We don't live under the condemnation. We live in freedom. What an incredible truth that we need to understand. So the central message of God's one big story is this ultimate expression of grace. That the solution to the sin problem is found in Jesus Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths of this story, of these stories. In our honesty, we recognize that we can see ourselves in these stories in lots of different places. And we need to recognize, even as we saw in this text in 1 John 1, that we too are contributors. We are every bit as guilty. But Lord, because of the cross and because of resurrection hope, we live in freedom. We don't have to live in condemnation in any way, but we know that you, Lord Jesus, have taken care of the penalty and the price of sin. And you have taken it to the cross, and we thank you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who feels uh, more heavily that weight of brokenness, the brokenness of this world. God, may your freedom and may your hope overwhelm us. And may we see and know more intimately the implications of the cross and all that it means for our human condition, for our own personal condition. Lord, I pray, help us to see more clearly your great story and the truths of it for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.